You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Man, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Uh, if you guys can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is where we are, and uh, we're going to get right into it today. I'm excited to look at God's Word, as always. There's honestly nothing more exciting for me. Um, I feel most comfortable in this position when I'm just with the Word, and we're just explaining the Word, and uh, convinced that preaching and listening to preaching has always been um, preaching uh, is simply an explanation of the scriptures and uh, listening to the explanation of the scriptures and allowing it to work in your life. And so for us today, um, our only goal and, and what your goal should be um, is always just to understand what the scriptures are saying uh, because the scriptures will do their work in your life. We don't have to add we don't have to shake up too much application. Um, we do, but, but I want us to, to more value understanding rightly the Word of God, and it'll just have its power. All of a sudden, you'll start to think differently as you get intake and doses of God's Word and Scripture on a regular basis. You'll think differently. You'll feel differently. You'll act differently in accordance with the truth. So, um, so that's, that's always the goal. That's always where, where we want to be with this. Um, so Luke chapter 6, as you guys know... Um, in the Old Testament, after the fall of man, in uh, Genesis chapter three, there you go, close, if you said four, um, we see a redemption taking place, uh, an act of redemption by God, where what he's doing is he's restoring his reign and his rule over his people um, on into Jesus Christ, okay? So he is trying to restore the reign and rule of himself over his people until really they understand the necessity for a savior because they continue to turn away. And so over and over his people did turn away and over and over God's people uh, did not want God's reign and God's rule. They said they wanted his reign and his rule in their lives when they were what? Like in big trouble, right? When they were in need, they needed God back. And, uh, but then they would move on into um, idolatry. And so this kingdom of God has been advancing um, really since the fall, right? Since the fall, God has, is restoring back his reign and his rule. God's kingdom is wherever God is king. And so he's making himself king again over his people. His people have the tendency to be under their own reign, their own rule, want to follow their own ways, and uh, God is saying, no, 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 stay in my care, stay underneath me, come back under here, come back under my reign, my rule, my watch, my governing, this is for your good, right? So what we've seen is that over and over again, God is doing this. And then as, as we make our way into the New Testament, we see that the sin, the sin of man is, is a, a complete deterrent for, for, God, for man to be under the reign and rule of God. So God sends his son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ comes in a, in a humble and hidden way. He is, he is charged to reign and to rule um, as God's son, but yet he is showing the people what this looks like. So he's been showing them, them his upside down kingdom. He's showing them who he is so that if they would believe in him, they would have eternal life. But what he's teaching them is about this kingdom. And what we've said is that this kingdom is upside down. Really, after we see his humble and hidden entrance and all the testimonies of who he is, really what he's doing is now teaching them what he has come to do. And he's come to bring forgiveness. Remember this? He's got the authority to forgive sins, right? The forgiveness is for the sinner. It's not for the righteous. Well, the righteous wouldn't even need forgiveness, right? He's going to save and he's going to use those who are not worthy. And, um, and what we saw in the at the start of the Beatitudes is that when Jesus is our treasure, we're blessed. When the world is not our treasure, when the world is our treasure, we are accursed. And so he's teaching them this upside down way. Now listen, as we move into this passage today in Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 27 through 36 and we're going to read those in just a moment. But what we're moving into today is Jesus' continued teaching of his upside-down kingdom, upside-down kingdom, and really everything to do with love, specifically love for the outsider, love for the enemy, okay? And this love for the enemy particularly emphasizes the love for the, for the non-believer, for the Gentile, okay? So we're going to establish that because I want to go in that direction today. I think it's important. We could generalize this and say it's love for all of our enemies. But I think today, I want, you to, I want you to step back and I want you to allow God to speak into your life regarding love for the non-believer, okay? Love for the non-believer because I think that this is where he's intended to go and I think this is gonna be helpful for us. It's upside down. And so Jesus is emphasizing love, charity, and goodness, traits that should characterize the people of God, people, residents of his kingdom, right? Especially towards the outsider, the one who does not believe in Jesus. And so let's pray and ask God to teach us this today. Father, we come before you this morning, and I want to ask you to help us to have love for the outsider. Love today, God, for those who don't believe in Jesus. God, every one of us in this room knows today somebody around us who is lost and without hope in the gospel. And there might be many a reason why we should not pursue them in love. But God, I pray that you would teach us today what this really, really looks like, to love someone into the kingdom of God. And I pray that we would be people who do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, okay? Here we go. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To, no one, to, no, uh, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer, also, uh, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For, the kind, um, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is an incredible passage. And this is a sermon. Verses 20 through 49 are a sermon. You can find the same sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, right? The Beatitudes. If you put them together, you probably get a, a more package, a whole package of what Jesus was actually saying. But that's probably still not the entirety of the sermon, right? Jesus was probably there for a very long time, um, speaking to them for a long time. So if you think sermons should be short, right? I got Jesus backing me up that these things are going to be long, okay? Um, but he's probably there for a very long time, okay? And the combination of the two gives us an insight um, into what it really looked like, but probably not even a portion of what really was Jesus was saying. The gospel writers, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down what God wanted us to see and to hear. So what we understand about this is I want to take you, I want to take you through this. We're going to jump right in, okay? But we're going to, before we get into our points for our message, we got to look at a little bit of this context, okay? So if you look at verse 26, look at verse 26. It says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets, okay? So all people will not speak well of you if you're a Christian, right? That's just, that, that's the simple truth. All people will not speak well of you if you're a Christian. And if you stand for truth, really this is speaking to, if you are a faithful Christian who are, is constantly speaking truth, right? If you stand for truth, people will not speak well of you. People will be upset with you often. People will hate you on the regular. Why? Because truth is in contrast to our nature, okay? People spoke well of who? Look at the end of verse 26. Who is it? The false prophets. That's how we know that this really has a dealing with truth more than anything else, okay? People loved, liked, were around, wanted to hear the false prophets. Why? Because they didn't stand for any truth. They just said whatever the people wanted to hear, right? So if you're speaking truth and you're a Christian and you're faithful, all people will not speak well of you. Plain, simple, that's the verdict. Done. Because in contrast, people spoke well of the false prophets, the one who did not speak the truth, right? So in scripture, we know that who are prophets? Prophets are people who hear from God and they speak the truth to the people of God, right? They hear from God and they speak to the, the truth to the people of God. For us, right, if we have a gift of so, you know, prophecy in that way. Well, many a times it's just one who is a preacher who hears from God through the word of God and speaks to the people of God. Right. And so people did not speak well of true prophets because they didn't like the truth. That's the truth. Right. People did speak well of the false prophets because they didn't speak any truth. So either by saying something that the people wanted to hear or that would be popular or accepted or simply that the sinful people don't want to hear truth, right? Lies are more natural for us, okay? Lies are more natural for us. They're more fitting to serve our human idols, 
okay? That's what we really would like to hear, right? When, when we hear truth, it fights against the natural grain of our sinful nature. So we are obstinate towards it. We don't want it. And this is necessary for us to pay attention to. Because I think this is why true preaching always has the nature of a defense. You ever notice that? I notice that sometimes when I'm listening to preachers, I'm like, what? I wonder why his attitude is, is one of a, as a defense, right? Like it sounds like it's, a, it's an instant defense instead of an offense. Does that make sense? Well, that's the nature of preaching because that's what we're doing. We're defending the truth. We're standing for the truth. Our natures are, are constantly uh, pushing against the truth. And so we are speaking against what's natural, right? Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, truth versus what comes natural. So what we need most, listen, church, before, like as we're getting into this, this is setting us up, and then these points are gonna be easy. Let me tell you what I've discovered. What our culture most needs is truth, right? Our culture needs truth. Our culture needs truth more than anything. Not just from the pulpits, but from God's people. We need truth. We don't need personalities, right? We don't need, we don't need uh, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of emotion. We need emotion, but we don't need a, a ton of it because it can drive us in ways that we think are truth and they may not be truth. What we need more than anything else is truth. Truth changes people. Truth is what gets our minds thinking about what God really wants, what God really says. We listen to it, we believe it, we change. That's how it works. And I'm not meaning this in a cliche way. What I mean by this is we, we really need to base our lives on the truth. These people were obstinate against, these people will be obstinate against truth because truth fights against our natural nature. But what we most need is truth. And Jesus is saying the ones who speak the truth are the true disciples who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Listen, what our church, what our people, what our community needs is not a life just filled with pursuing getting what we want or pursuing ease or comfort or success, not simply avoiding conflict. Listen, this is, this is what we need. We need a life that is built in pursuit of truth, sharing the truth. Truth changes people, truth advances God's will the cultural Christianity version that we live in. Listen, I gotta tell you, this is crazy to me. And we need to hear this, and I need to take heed just as much as you do, but listen, we base nothing upon truth. I mean, really, like, I know that's like hyperbole, but I mean, the culture in general regarding Christianity bases very little upon actually the truth of God's word. Like, what church are we gonna attend? Hmm. I like this part of this one, that part of that one, this one, you know, has the good kids ministry, et cetera, et cetera. That one is shorter, right? Sam over there, he pre, you know, they got Lonnie and Sam, they go the distance, you know? So we'll go to the other church. Um, okay, well, what part of that decision is based upon what does God's word say a church should look like? That would be basing your decision upon truth. Oh, this church looks like a biblical great commission church. I'm gonna go there. That would be based. What about how I parent? Well, I feel like this is the most effective means in which I should parent. Well, is that aligned with the word of God? What about how you conduct your relationships? 
What about how you deal with conflict? What about how you deal with emotions or hurt feelings? What about the culture who thinks that we're Christians? Everyone is a Christian because I live a moral, good, healthy, my family eats right, we go, we go to bed on time, we always brush our teeth, right? We get up in the morning, we always have breakfast, we're Christians, right? And like, well, what part of that is based upon what a Christian really looks like, scripturally? One who is on mission, willing to die for the cause of Christ at any moment, willing to sell everything for the sake of the Great Commission, right? Always in community, eating God's word on a, on a daily basis, morning and night. Like, that's what a Christian looks like. And so when we say we are, and that's not what our lives look like, I, it's not us who are judging you. I'm just saying that's not what a Christian looks like, right? What, what, how about we, how we spend our money? So we, we have to understand the idea of truth here. Jesus is saying those who stand for truth are truly in the kingdom of God. We have to be people who do. Listen, Romans 10, one through four says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not based on truth. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen, look at this. This is how the culture is. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5. All scripture is breathed out by God. Like, here's the truth, ready? All scripture, that's breathed out by God. That's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's the truth. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teachings. Like enough with the feeling, let's just base our lives on truth. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They're gonna have itching ears. They wanna hear what they want, what's gonna scratch the itch. So they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit what? Their own passions. And what are they gonna turn away from? Listening to the what? Truth and wander off into myths. And so this is important. This is so, so important. This is an opportunity to spend some time on this. I love my systematic theology class right now. If you guys um, have the opportunity to get in that class after this current semester, man, we are learning the truth about prayer. We're learning the truth about God's character. We're learning the, the, the truth about heaven and hell, about Satan and demons and angels. We're learning, I mean, we're learning true things from God's word. And what it does is just changes the way in which you view the world. And it changes you. And that's why my aim in preaching is just the explanation of the scriptures. That's it. You don't need me to reinvent the wheel. I'm resolving to be unoriginal on a weekly basis. Right? Why? Because all you need is the scriptures explained to you. God wrote it how he wrote it for a reason. And that's the only authority I have, by the way. The only authority that I have in this pulpit is not my ideas. If I start getting off track and I start going in one direction, or I start going another direction, and we're getting, we're getting around, and I'm like, man, I've spent like 10 minutes away from the text, you should say to yourself, what makes your ideas better than my ideas? Why do you, why your ideas work? Like, just teach me what the scripture says. Like, that's, that's, all, that's all I wanna know, right? So listen to this, I mean this. We need biblical truth. We need biblical truth.
That's what we need. I wanna tell you because we're gonna deal with relational issues. I'm gonna harp on this a little bit more. Here's what the two, here's two aspects I feel like in relationships that are void of truth, okay? And I'm just, I'm just I believe that this is where, where we in our culture need most help. Number one is what I feel is always right, right? Like, let me just tell you, that's not always the truth, right? Like, just because you feel some way doesn't always make it right, okay? So, like, we're gonna get into this, and you're gonna see, like, our feelings could be in such a way that would teach us otherwise, but that doesn't mean that it's truth, and I think this is important for us because as we move out from this, I'm gonna show you how this passage connects. I think what we still need to sit on for a second is that what people, what Jesus is saying is true believers stand for truth, right? And if you are spoken well of by everybody, then you're probably not standing for truth. And so I think this deals with relationally what I think is very important for us. And I think, again, the first flaw that I see in our culture is that we have adopted this idea that what I feel is always right. It's this individualism. Think about this. Individualism. Like, the individual is always validated. Always. Always validated. No matter If you're an individual and you feel a certain way, you shouldn't feel that way. How dare everybody else in the world make you feel that way? right? Like, just because you feel a certain way doesn't make it true. Listen, just because you feel a, way, a certain way doesn't always make it true. It might be just you're feeling that way. <laughs> like, that's it, right? You just feel that way. You just feel like you're uncomfortable, or maybe you're just not getting what you want, or maybe you feel a certain way because it's pushing you to grow, right? But just because you feel a certain way, don't let that take over truth, right? Just because you feel a certain way doesn't make it right, especially relationally. Look at this, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above what? All things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? You trust your heart and what you feel as truth, you're standing on something that is not truth, all right? The second flaw that I see in our culture is how I go about dealing with relational conflict. Number one in that is what I feel is right. Number two is how I go about dealing with relational conflict. Look at Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Sounds to me like bad grammar, but I know it's right. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. So listen, let me just tell you this. As we look at this, let me tell you, relationally, because that's what we're dealing with, right? The first part of this section, we dealt with ourselves, okay? And how we make Jesus our treasure, proof we inherit the kingdom of God. Here we're dealing with others, yet it's coming out of this idea of standing for truth. I think two of the main aspects where we fail in this in our culture is what I feel is right and how I go about dealing with relational conflict. Let me just take a moment to encourage you, okay? If you have issues with somebody, go to that person directly. Matthew chapter 18, right? One of the biggest areas of flaws I see in our culture is that we tell everybody before we go directly to a person that we have issues with, right? Like, if we, have, if we are in relational conflict, we will go through every means possible to deal with it, except going directly to the person which displays that we don't really want resolution, right? We, we, we are either afraid or we just want to sulk in, in our misery. And so that's not standing on truth. Listen, church, brothers and sisters, we have, this, is, this is the way in which I feel like our culture is not standing upon truth. Like, where did we ever get the idea to, to go to somewhere else and never maybe even go to the direct source, ever? Like, tell 15 other people, and then what we'll do is I'll just say, like, okay, I'm, I'm done now, right? And like, never go to the direct source. Listen, church, we have to be people who show, what the, show the world what the love and forgiveness of God looks like and the desire for restoration. And so, church, I want to encourage you. Listen, this is the two areas I see relationally that our culture does not stand on truth. What I feel is always right and how I go about dealing with conflict is I'll just go about it however I want. This gives us Matthew chapter 18. Go ahead and put that back up, Michelle. Gives you step by step. You don't even have to wonder. <laughs> like, we don't even have to, we don't have to even, you know, infer. We just read and f obey. And so, I think that we would, would see a lot of change in our lives relationally if we would go in these two directions and avoid the, the peril of each. So, Verse 22 and verse 23, go back up. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. So if you're a true disciple, then they will do that because of your association with truth, right? So this coincides with verse 26. Okay. If you're a true disciple and your association with Jesus and the truth, how should you think about this? Well, you should rejoice because of your association with the Son of Man and your stance for truth. People will revile you. People will exclude you. People will spurn your name on the account of the Son of Man. And verse 26, jump ahead because those are the parallel verses. If they don't, then woe to you because you're not standing for truth. Right? Like, that's the train of thought here. 
okay? Look at Acts 5.41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the dishonor of his name. So the, the apostles were suffering for the sake of standing for truth, right? Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Like that's a privilege, okay? So evidence of true discipleship is standing for truth. That's what we see here. This is, this is what we're looking at. Now, the reason why I bring all this up, the reason why I talk about the truth, and the reason why I show this context is because verse 27 starts with a very important word. What does it start with? But. That's how we know those two are connected. Okay? But. So, let's, let's take this in in a, uh, in a way we can understand it. Verse 22, 23, you're blessed when people revile you because you stand for truth or the Son of God. Verse 26, woe to you if they speak well of you because you're not standing for truth and for the Son of God. But even when they don't speak well of you, right? Here's how you should treat them. Does that make sense, how that connection is? So what that allows us to infer is that that's probably the context for verses 27 through 36. That's why I say, I think it speaks to your dealing with non-believers, with Gentiles. Those are the enemies. If you define enemy in this passage, I would define it as those who are persecutors of Christians, the church. I think that this passage could be taken in light of like, hey, if you just have someone who's mad at you or you're mad at somebody else, how do you treat them, right? Of course those principles apply. But I want us to see this rightly because we'll do that another time, right? Like we'll do that at a, at a different time. So everybody understand. Good. Now, here's what I'll ask you as we dive into this passage. Who is there in your life right now that doesn't believe in Jesus? And maybe you look to or look at like an enemy. Like, who's the non-believer in your life who hasn't treated you right because of your faith? And how are you loving them into the kingdom of God? That's what this is about. Um, I also see this connection because I want you to see Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Same account, same sermon as we talked about last week. It's the same sermon, just different emphasis, different words. Look at this. You have, here's how he introduces the same section, okay? So you take this and to say, man, if we combine it, we get a better understanding of what this really looks like. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who do what? Okay, so we're seeing some context here. So that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the, what? Evil and the good. Okay, so those who 
maybe are his children and those who are not, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I think here the context is those who don't believe, okay? Now with that being said, here's what we're looking at. Verses 27 through 28 in this section, I think are like in the overall thought introduction to the section. Verses 29 through 31 are examples, okay? Follow with me, look at your text. 27 through 28, overall thought. 29 through 31, examples. 32 through 36, the benefits for you and the proof of your own salvation and God's example of how this works with him. So what we're gonna only do is cover verses 27 through 28, right? I tried uh, to think through this and I'd be like, this is gonna be two hours. Um, so all we're gonna do is walk through verses 27 through 28, but I think it's fitting. And then next week, I think we're gonna try to combine 29 through 36. So here we, here's what it looks like. When people do hate you, when people do persecute you, when people do speak evil against you, when people are hating you or not speaking well of you because of your stance for truth, because of your, your relationship to Jesus, here are four positive commands for how you should act. And when I say positive, what I mean is these don't say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. They say, do this, do that, do this. So they're active, they're proactive, they're not refraining, they're active. And these four commands are how we should respond when we face persecution from outsiders. Number one, we see the heart of those who are in the kingdom. What should our hearts be? Well, our hearts should be of what? Love, verse 27a. The heart, the heart of those in the kingdom of God who are persecuted for their relationship with Jesus, who are hated by outsiders, by Gentiles, by those who don't believe, who are not spoken well of by the lost world, should have hearts of love. Love, your heart should be of love. We discussed this a few times already, but listen, I think it's important, it says, I say to you, verse 27, you who what? Look at your text. You who hear. Well, we know Jesus is talking about. He's not just saying, what he's not saying is, everyone who's in the crowd right now, hey, listen, if you could hear me, right? Show love. Like, what is he saying here in this passage? He's saying, if you perceive, if you let the if you have salvation and your eyes have been opened and your hearts have been opened and you can understand what I'm saying here, then I want you to understand how I'm telling you to respond to non-believers. So who do we know he's talking to if he says that? Believers, right? Believers in Christ are those who hear and understand, right? Verse Luke eleven twenty-eight. 28, look at this. But he said, blessed rather are those who do what? Hear the word of God and obey it, right? We know there's a difference between simply hearing and really hearing. 
This is who he's talking to. Mark 4, 12. Look at this on the screen. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven, right? So we see people need to hear this with spiritual ears. Go up to verse 20 uh, in the Beatitudes. Stay with me on this. Verse 20. What does verse 20 says? Who's he talking to? The disciples. But we know that there are plenty of disciples who, who were going to turn away, right? So who is he talking to specifically now? Believers or non-believers? Well, verse 27. I'm talking to you who can what? Hear. I'm talking to you believers and how you should deal with those who persecute you because your association with truth and your relationship to the Son of God, right? What should you do for those who persecute you or don't treat you right? Let's just say don't treat you right and who do not belong to the Son of God. Well, what he says is you should love. This is how you should act. You should love. There's four main, there's really four main words in Greek for the idea of love in the scriptures. And this one is the most intense. You guys know it probably because people use it all the time. What is it? Agape, right? And this is meaning without merit. This is a full choice, right? And Matthew provides insight to this, to who it's referring to. And what we see is, look at Matthew 45, 43 through 44. I'm just referring to the same sermon again. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love. So without merit, without them providing anything, regardless of how they've treated you, for the non-believer, we show them the highest form of love, right? And we know that, again, I think this is talking about those outside the kingdom of God because look at Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. When it uses the idea or word of neighbor here, what we see is those of God's own people. And this is what I think Jesus is referring to when he speaks this. And so what we see here is the enemy is probably those outside of this family. But listen, to people living in occupied territory. Listen to this close. When people, these people are living in occupied territory because who runs their world? Who? Romans, right? So how should we treat these Romans, these Gentiles who persecute us because of our faith? Well, should we hate them? Should we hurt them? To the Gentile or to the non-believer? No, we should love them. Why? Here's the context and reason for this first sentence. I say to you who hear, believers, love your enemies, the ones who don't believe, love them into the kingdom. Why? Here's the reason I believe. Because this is salvation for them. This is how they will inherit salvation, through your love. So why do we love people who are outside the kingdom? Because that's the way they come into the kingdom. We love them into the kingdom, regardless of how they treat you. The only way they're coming in is through your love. That's it. If they're a non-believer, the only way they're coming in, the door is through love, right? God's gonna do it, ultimately, but how's he gonna use you? Through your love for them. 
Because this is, sermon is really about salvation. That's why I can infer that. Because this sermon really is about salvation, the whole thing. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes we make it more complicated than it is. But it's about salvation. What it looks like for a believer to be saved, evidences of salvation, and evidence of those who receive salvation, conduct for those who have received salvation. Right? This reasons to love your enemy is because God is going to use it. Now, I want you to understand something. The reason why this is important is because there could be a many a reason, and I don't know what your life looks like, but there could be many a reason why there's people around you who don't believe in Jesus, who have hurt you pretty bad, and the last thing you wanna do is love them into the kingdom. I mean, think about these Gentiles towards these Jews. They've probably beaten them more than once. And this isn't any new thing. Think about Jonah. Jonah is one of my favorite characters. The book is probably my favorite book in all the Bible, until I read another one. No, I'm just kidding. Like every book I read, this is my favorite, hands down, you know? No, just kidding, Jonah really is. Jonah's the reason why we came to plant this church, the book of Jonah. And Jonah is consistently on my mind. And I'm taking the Northwestern Mutual staff on Monday mornings right now through the book of Jonah. And therefore, I'm also reading Jonah in my personal devotional time. And what we see in Jonah is, Jonah was called by God, he's a prophet, to go and speak to the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh, without getting into all the context, because I'm gonna teach the book of Jonah as soon as we're done with Luke, which is probably a year from now. So Jonah, listen, he's called to go to Nineveh. And this is like modern day, just say, Middle East terrorists. I mean, really, they skin people alive. I mean, they're treating people terribly. Jonah was ministering actually to God's people in a time of prosperity. So God is literally calling him out of an easy context into a go preach to these people who are your enemies. And Jonah, what we know is, he turns away from going to Nineveh and he goes to where? Tarshish, right? But I think he could have gone anywhere. Tarshish reminds, is, is fitting because it's like an opposite direction. If you look on a map, it's almost like 180 degrees, right? So that's why it's fitting. But Jonah's name means silly. Jonah's main name means silly. So if you, read the, if you read that book hundreds of times, like I think I have, what you realize is Jonah is not like, he's not hard-nosed obstinate to God. He's, in, like, he's just silly, he's apathetic, he's in despair. He is, he's not thinking clearly. He's just like, whatever, right? Because we see once he gets on the boat, he goes into the bottom of the boat, storms raging, he goes to sleep, right? He's just acting silly, doesn't make any sense, right? And he says in one passage, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a follower of God, when they ask them who he is, ask him who he is, but then in the other sense of the word, he's not following what God says, right? So he's silly, he's just silly. They ask him, they say, well, why is this storm happening? And he says, it's because of me, throw me overboard. Like, I would just rather die. Like, he's, he's very honest, he's, he knows the issue, he just doesn't wanna do what God says. He's not obstinate, he just is, like, he's just emotionally in despair. He wants to die, he says it multiple times, right? And God wants them to go love the non-believer. 
the, the ones who are not following God. And so they throw him overboard and he goes into the sea and the, they eventually, well, they tried to row first, right? They're like, well, maybe we can do this thing even with this guy who's messing up. And they figured they can't. God just sent the winds, right? The winds became more and more, what, tempestuous, right? So finally they do throw him overboard. And when Jonah goes into the water, the, the, the storm stops and the fish comes and swallows him. And the fish, I, I, and I can't wait to teach this, but the fish is not part of the discipline. The fish is the savior, right? When he's in the belly of the fish, he's recounting his crying out from the waters. And he's thanking God for saving him while he's in the belly of the fish. The fish is a representative of the saviors, savior. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then out of his repentance, God relents and shows mercy to this silly man and spits him out on the dry land, gives him another opportunity, right? But what we see is the reason why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. You don't have to speculate. It's not just because he's running from God's will. Look at this, it tells us plainly, Jonah 3, 10 through 4, 3. When God saw what they did, so after Jonah finally gets another chance, goes, preaches to Nineveh, and how they turned from their evil way. As soon as he preaches, they turned away. They, re they repent. They come back to God. And what did God do? He relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. When they repented, God relented. Right? And you would think Jonah would be like, man, this is awesome. What is Jonah's response? It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when, you, when I was yet in my own country, in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster, a.k.a. I knew that you would forgive them and they'd be saved. That's why I didn't want to go. Like, if this doesn't speak to our passage, I don't know what does because there's sometimes we have attitudes towards a non-believer who has mistreated us like, I don't even really want them to be saved. I don't even want to deal with their issues. I'm not going to pursue them in love so that they are saved. Let somebody else do that. And what God is calling, that's why I think it's important we get this context right. I think the enemy is a non-believer and I think that we can, we can easily avoid those who have treated us wrong and who are not Christians without realizing that God is actually calling us to love those people and call them into the kingdom of God. And so 1 Peter 2, 18 through 24, we're done with this first point and it's our longest because it always sets, the first point usually always sets us up and the rest are easy. This is Christ's example. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and the Gentile and the gentle, but also to the unjust, those are who are evil, right, the unbeliever. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's what he did. Here's how you continue to share with a non-believer and love them into the kingdom of God even when you're mistreated. You continue entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. You trust God. You entrust yourself to him. That's what Jesus did. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Who are the lost people in your life that you need to love into the kingdom of God? That's the question. And have you given up on anybody because of how they treated you? Number two, not only do we see the heart, but we see the actions of those in the kingdom towards the non-believer. I say to you who hear, speaking to the believers, love your enemies. Okay, we talked about that. But he goes further and says to do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. So now what we see here is he expands not only to love, but to do something about it. And it's not negative. It's not not hate them, but it's love them. It's not don't do bad things to them. It's do good to them. See how the positive amplifies it? This is more than tolerance. It expands to doing good to those who are obstinate to truth, those who are obstinate to you because of your relationship with the Son of God. We go out of our way to do good to them. We see to it that no matter what others do to us, even if they insult us, ill-treat us, injure us, we will seek nothing but their highest good. What is their highest good? What? Salvation, right? Jesus. That's what we're seeking. This is, a, this is a choice of will, not just a feeling, right? 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. So we didn't do anything to deserve God's love and action to send his son, and yet God, in his own initiative, sent his son for us. He was moved to action. And this is not just benevolence, right? We're not just saying, I'm gonna do good to somebody, right? Like, I'll provide a meal for them. Sure, that's good, but listen, what your mind here is, because again, I think within the context, it's their highest good, which is salvation. You wanna love those outside the kingdom into the kingdom. We're to be called missionaries, church. Listen, let's not forget. I know most of us are growing. I know God is doing a lot in our hearts and in our minds, but don't forget to reach the lost person. Like, when's the last time you've done good to a lost person? Invited them into your home. Brought them to church with you. You got no reason to be upset about anything else if you're not on mission for the kingdom of God. Listen, we gotta get our minds on the mission. Who are the lost people in your life that right now you're sharing the gospel with? That are in your lives, that you're bringing with you to church, that you're investing in, that you're teaching about how to come to know Jesus? Who are the lost ones who are rude to you that you're loving into the kingdom of God currently? When's the last time you led somebody to Christ and saw them saved? Can you even remember? We got to get back to this focus. Look at Jesus's action because of his compassion. Verses nine through, or 36 through 38 in Matthew chapter nine. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Those who were outside of the kingdom of God. Then he said to his disciples, listen, we gotta pray. We gotta pray for laborers 
who are going to go out into the harvest and are going to reach these people. Look at this action, Matthew 14, 14. When he, saw, when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he was moved to action. But he just want to heal their sick? Like, is that the whole point? No. He wanted to heal them, to love them into the kingdom of God. And so what about you? What actions do you need to take with the people in your world right now who don't know Jesus? I'm not just telling you to love them. We're gonna ante this up and say, do good to them. Be proactive. Pursue them. Share the gospel with them. Number one, the heart of those in the kingdom towards the enemy, love. The action of those in the kingdom towards the enemy, do good. Number three, the speech of those in the kingdom towards the enemy, verse 28, bless. How do we know this is dealing with words? Because bless those who the opposite, all these deal with a lot of opposites, but curse you, right? And bless, more than anything, is wishing or hoping or praying again for them to be in the most favorable position, right? Remember when we saw blessed and woes, right? Blessed meaning in the best possible position. Woe meaning in the worst possible condition, right? Curse, very synonymous in the scriptures with woe, right? So, Listen, when someone wishes upon you because of your faith and because of the truth that you would be in the worst possible condition ever, like I just wish the worst condition upon you, you Christian who's telling me the truth and I don't want to hear it and your relationship with Jesus, well, I wish the most favorable position upon you. That's what he's literally saying here. Bless them with your words. Speak them, speak to them love and care. Colossians 4, three through six. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account of which I am in prison, as Paul speaking, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, speaking to the outsider, to the Gentile, to the non-believer, right? Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my rock and my redeemer. 1 Peter 3, 9 through 18, it's a long one, but we're almost done here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling has to do with your words. But on the contrary, bless. For, though, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees good days, look at this, this is the context of the blessing. Well, here's how you bless. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. The same context of what we're talking about in our passage. Have no fear, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. So you're preaching the gospel to the non-believer with love, right? So what we see in this passage is here's how he's telling you to deal with the non-believer. Love them, do good to them, bless them with your words, and number four, probably, I mean, I don't know most importantly, but most effectively, the prayer of those who are in the kingdom towards the evil. It says in verse 28, I mean, this is really straightforward, right? This doesn't take a lot of digging to understand what he's saying here. So last part of this, pray for those who abuse you. And the NASB, those who mistreat you. Now, this is hard for me because we're gonna get into some examples next week. And with the examples, it's gonna be what you do with abuse towards you for your faith. And that's a hard subject to deal with because what it sounds like you're saying, Jesus, is go, in, go back into that situation, right? Like to talk about a married couple, right? Who one person is a believer, non-believer, and they strike you on the cheek, go and give them the other cheek, like, Come on, give me some more. That's not what he's saying. But we'll deal with that next week. Abuse, mistreat. I like here how he just says, how he says pray. I mean, it's not up to me to like it or not. I'm just saying it's helpful for me to see this. Literally next week what you see is when someone, the word is not really cheek, it's jaw. So when someone punches you in the jaw, that's what he's referring to, right, next week. But here as we see this, mistreating, right, for your faith. I wanna put this in the proper context because the idea here is not just if I'm hurt, but the idea here is for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes you go into other countries, right, and you will be killed for your faith. How do you deal with that? I think this is more the context for that. Does that make sense than anything else? So, but what do we do? We pray. Now listen, let me just tell you as we close, prayer is the most effective thing that you can do. I mean, you guys know that, but why don't we pray? If you know that, why don't you pray? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that folly? Like that stupidity to the highest order. Not calling you stupid, calling myself stupid. Like, what are you thinking about? If you pray, God hears and it's effective, right? Here's like the theology of prayer. What's the reason? Well, God keeps us dependent upon him. What's the effectiveness? Well, God answers prayer. What's the heart? In Jesus' name, not by our own merit, right? Those are the staples of biblical theology and systematic theology regarding prayer, right? Reason, effectiveness, heart. And all of those point towards a God who does things that we cannot possibly do. 
and yet we don't pray. And it's like a cycle. We don't pray, so we don't see God do incredible things, and therefore we have no encouragement towards prayer or believe in it, and so then we don't pray. But then we don't see anything, and then it just continues. So listen, what he's saying here is, if you pray, maybe this enemy's heart will change. Maybe the heart of this person who has not believed in Jesus will change. What can change a heart that doesn't believe in God? God. That's it. Look at this. Mark 4, 25 through 27, dealing with salvation. And he said the kingdom of heaven is as if a man should scatter a seed on the ground. And then what does he do? I love this. He sleeps and he rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. That's awesome. Right? Scatter seed and go to sleep. That's what he's saying. And here, like, the, the one who does not know God, right? Some of you, that's what you want to do. You're going to say, all right, I'm going to just scatter seed and go to sleep. Listen, the one who does not know God will come to know God through God doing the work. And so the greatest thing that we can do is pray. Are you praying for those who are mistreating you because of your faith? Church, as we close... I want you guys to be people on mission. It's for the non-believer around you. And part of that, most of that, throughout your life will be dealing with how the non-believer treats you. Your heart should be that of love. Your action should be that of doing good. And your speech should be that of blessing. And you should be in constant prayer for those people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and I ask that you would be glorified in this, that you would help us to understand it rightly and I pray that you would use it in the next service for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure. 